Well, I'm so glad you're with us. Uh, I'm Petey, I'm the senior pastor here at CPC. If I've not had a chance to meet you, please say hello after the service. Would love to, to get to know you better. Uh, okay, so one of the things that I love about the Christmas season is that every single day when the mail comes, we get Christmas cards in the mail from, from people. And I love opening them up and seeing people's Christmas cards. And, and maybe one of the best things about it is because we've lived in several places over the last 20 years. And so we kind of follow people through their Christmas cards. And the best thing is when you get a card, and you open it up and you see it and you're like, oh yeah, those people. <laughs> and like, if you're honest, like you hadn't really thought about those people since last year's Christmas card. Uh, but then, it, like, you know, you get the card in the mail, and it's like, you know, it's revealing to you that, wow, these people really did care enough at least to send us a Christmas card, even if we had forgotten who they were. Uh, and, and I think that every year when it comes to Christmas, we're reminded that God loves us, right? That God loves us enough to come into the world, into our mess, into our disruption, to show that he loves us. And honestly, maybe potentially even if for a moment or a season we might have forgotten about God. We might have forgotten about our relationship, put it on the back burner, haven't taken it seriously, haven't considered God very much, gone through very uh, large swaths of our days, weeks, and months on our own capacity, on our own strength without really thinking about our faith. God has been faithful to us even when we forget him. And what the good news I want us to see this morning is that the selflessness of Christ reveals God's faithful love for the world, his faithful love for the world and his faithful love for us, right? God comes for all of us who maybe have forgotten him for a moment or two. He comes for all of us who might feel stuck, for all of us that life has not worked out how we might have expected, or maybe life went exactly how you wanted and it's not as fulfilling as you thought it might be. God comes to show his faithful love to all of us. God's love is faithful. And by faithful love, we mean that God's love is not contingent upon who you are or what you've done. His love is contingent upon who he is and what he does for us. And we're gonna see that in our story this morning. And so for Advent, for the weeks leading up to Christmas, we've been looking at the women who are named in the lineage of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew includes four Old Testament stories of women uh, who are a part of the lineage of Jesus. And we've been looking at these over the past few weeks. And so I'm going to show you how we got here. And so the Old Testament really follows the story of a people known as Israel or the Hebrews or the Jewish people. And there's Father Abraham. Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac who has a son named Jacob who has a son named Judah. And then Judah fathers a child with Tamar. Tamar was the first week that we looked at, and then six generations passed, and then uh, we met a woman last week named Rahab. Rahab was a, was a, harbored a couple of spies that came into Jericho. She was a Canaanite woman. She ended up staying with the Jewish people, married a man named Salmon, and they fathered a child named Boaz, who shows up in our story today and meets a woman named Ruth. And so Ruth might be a story that if you've been in church for a while and if you haven't, fine, 
Totally great, glad you're here. If you've been around church and you know the story of Ruth, you might know it better than you know the story of Rahab or Tamar. Um, but Ruth is a, is a short book in the Old Testament. It's four chapters long. I would actually say you could go home today, read the whole thing in less than 15 minutes. It's a fascinating story. I wanna tell you the story. Uh, in uh, the last few weeks, a bit unusual, I'm encouraging you not, don't open the Bible, don't have, have it in front of you because I wanna tell you the story. I don't want you to get lost in all the details that I'm going to skip over in telling you the story. And so uh, I just want to tell it to you. Go home and read it later. Um, but the story of Ruth happens in a period of, of Jewish history known as the period of the judges. And so uh, if you go back a little bit, there's an Exodus. There's a whole book of the Bible called Exodus where the Jewish family, the Hebrew family, they go down into, uh, into Egypt. They become slaves in Egypt. And then after a time passes, God rescues them in an event known as the Exodus. And then after the Exodus, they go across the Sinai Peninsula and they get into the land, the promised land that God has told them he will give them. And they go into it in a period known as the conquest. And after they've conquered the land and settled it, they go into a period known as the judges before they're not ruled by kings yet, they are ruled by judges. And it's a messy, chaotic, weird period. There's a book of the Bible called Judges that tells a bunch of weird stories. And Ruth happens during the time of the judges. And that's gonna be important, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But so in the time of Ruth, in the time of the judges, there is a famine. And right off the bat, we know there's an issue here because God has said, I'm gonna take you out of Egypt. I'm gonna give you the promised land and the promised land will be a land, he says it many times, flowing with milk and honey. And there's a famine in the land. So we kind of get a hint right away. A, a land flowing with milk and honey would be a productive land, a healthy land, but yet there's a famine. So we get this clue, something's not right. And so there's a famine in the land uh, of Israel and a man named Elimelech is married to a woman named Naomi and they have two sons and they leave the land to go to a place called Moab. And in Moab, they think they're gonna find a better living situation with more uh, ways to provide for themselves. So they go to Moab and their two sons marry Moabite women. These two Moabite women are named Orpah and Ruth. So Orpah and Ruth are the two daughters-in-law of Naomi and Elimelech. Well, what happens in the story is Elimelech, the father dies and the two sons die. So all of a sudden here you have in Moab, in a strange land, Naomi the widow, Orpah the widow, and Ruth the widow. All they have, they have no descendants, they have no heirs, no children, just these three widowed women. And, and in their society, they would have been the most vulnerable place. They would not have had a single way to provide for themselves. They would have been in danger of perishing. They would not have been provided for. And so Naomi says, well, I can't be provided for in Moab, so I'm gonna go back home to my ancestral home to, to Israel. And she tells her daughters-in-law, hey, I can't provide for you. Even if we go back home, I can't provide for you. You should stay here in your own land, remarry, provide for yourselves, yada, yada, yada. And so Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law says, okay, fine, I'll stay. But then Ruth, the other daughter-in-law who we're looking at today, Ruth says this, hear these words. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What a powerful statement by Ruth to her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law, guys. Isn't this crazy? And this is like this statement, this confession by by Ruth of her willingness to be loyal to her mother-in-law, a daughter of Bethlehem, a daughter of Israel, is is the linchpin of this whole book. This This is what's undergirding the whole story is her commitment because Naomi and Ruth were, were beyond vulnerable and, and, and they moved back home into, uh, into Bethlehem and they have no way of providing for themselves. And so Ruth has followed Naomi and, and she realizes we, we have no food, we have no shelter, we have no one to provide. And so to help make ends meet, so to speak, Ruth goes out into the fields and she follows behind. Uh, when, they, when they glean the fields, these people sweep behind it and get the leftovers and then Ruth is following behind them so that she's able to sort of, uh, so to speak, pick up the breadcrumbs from the field to be able to take home that she and her mother-in-law might be able to eat something. And so she's doing this in, in the field of a man named Boaz. And so if you've read Ruth, studied Ruth, Boaz is a central character in the story, but we're talking about Ruth today. And so Boaz will not be as prominent, but Boaz is very important. He's a local, prominent, very upstanding, affluent businessman, farmer, and he has this field. And he goes to one of his servants and he says, who is that random woman following the gleaners in the field? And, and so they explain, no, she's, she's Ruth. She's a Moabite woman that came back with Naomi uh, when Naomi's uh, husband passed away. And so they're just two widows. She's just providing for themselves. And so Ruth, takes, uh, Ruth is noticed by Boaz. Boaz starts to help take care of her, says that, you know, the, no one will harass you. You'll be, you'll be fine. You'll be safe. You can continue to do this. I'll provide for you. And so Naomi goes, or Ruth goes home to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and tells her about what happened. And, and Naomi says, oh my goodness, Boaz, is actually a relative of ours. He's a relative of ours. In fact, there was this, this sort of code in Israel where, uh, called the kinsman redeemer, where a relative, a male relative would be responsible for taking care of uh, like a widow of a relative that had been, uh, you know, something had happened, tragedy had happened, a widow, and taking care of their, the widow and the children and the land and the property that that widow had now inherited. And so it's like, this is great news. Boaz likes you. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer in our family. He can choose to take you on as a wife and our, all of our needs will be met. We'll be taken care of. And so they hatch this plan. And so one night after the threshing is done on the threshing floor and they've had a little bit of a party and a celebration and everyone sort of camped out for the night on the threshing floor, Naomi slips in, or sorry, Ruth slips in and she comes to Boaz as he's laying there trying to fall asleep and basically offers, hey, I will be your wife if you'll have me. And so Boaz is like, okay, this is, a, this is a pretty good idea. I'll take this, I'll take this. But then he realizes, actually, there's another man. 
There's another man, and that man is a closer relative, and so he has first right of refusal. And so the next day they go to the city gates, which is where sort of transactions and businesses were done, and they go to the city gates, and, and Boaz says, hey, there's this, this young widow who's come home from Moab, and you are the next in line to be her kinsman redeemer. Um, and he says, well, I would take the land, but I don't really want the, the, the widows to go along with the land, so you can, you can have her. And, uh, and so Boaz steps in and acts as the kinsman redeemer and takes on Ruth as his wife. And so then they have a child who is in the lineage of Jesus. And so in this story, we see the the continuation of the story uh, that we've been following all along of how God steps in and makes provisions and helps further along the line that Jesus ultimately is born into. And the reason that we're looking at this genealogy in the way that we are is because uh, it would have been really uh, unusual in their day and time to include the names of women in a genealogy like this. And so we even know like the, the fact that the gospel writer Matthew included these four women, he's trying to tell us something. He's trying to communicate something about who God is uh, and, and why he sends his son and what Jesus ultimately came to do. And so every week we've been looking at how the Old Testament story points us to Jesus and what Jesus came to do. And so today I want you to see five ways that Ruth's story points us to Jesus. And the first is this, Ruth inhabits a world where things are falling apart and Jesus moves into a world where things are falling apart. So I said that Ruth happens during the period of the judges, and it was a dark and a messy period. And, and what's interesting is that the judges sort of acts, the, the period of the judges, there's like a cycle that happens. So God blesses the people. Everything's going well. The people act really disobedient. They forget about God. Things don't go so well. And then they need a savior. God steps in, and he saves them. And then they go back, and they start the cycle over again. God's blessing them, they fall apart, they get off track. And so what we hear is, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but there's a famine, right? Ruth steps into a world of famine and chaos and things are falling apart. She's a widow in a broken space, moving into a world where she won't be taken care of. She moves into a world where things are falling apart. Well, Jesus comes into a world where things are messy and falling apart. In both the time that he came into then, and the time that he comes into now, that our world is messy and chaotic and things feel like they're falling apart, that we need a course correction in our world that Jesus comes into the world to offer. And here's what he does. Number two, Ruth selflessly sacrifices, leaves home, and takes a risky path. And Jesus selflessly sacrifices, leaves home, and takes a risky path. I think as we hear the story of Ruth, it's easy to imagine that it's actually like a Hallmark story. Troubled woman comes into town, wealthy farmer meets her, they fall in love in 24 hours, and everyone lives happily ever after, right? That's how the story of Ruth feels to us. But Ruth was a vulnerable widow. She was one of the most dependent, vulnerable people in society. It was risky just to be her, much less to be a foreign woman, a Moabite widow, to move into Jerusalem, into Bethlehem, into the land of Israel. Would have been incredibly uncomfortable. She would have been unwelcomed. 
In fact, one theologian said that Ruth would have been about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. She chose the risky path. She chose the uncomfortable road to leave Moab and to move with Naomi. And Jesus leaves the comfort of his heavenly home to take the risky path to come into the world as an obedient servant, humble even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus chooses the risky path. The third thing I want you to see is that Ruth's plan hinges on a redeemer coming through. And God's plan hinges on a redeemer coming through. And so we have have Boaz as the kinsman redeemer in the story. And then we have Jesus who is the kinsman redeemer for all of humanity. He's the kinsman redeemer for you and for me that God's plan to redeem the world hinges on a redeemer coming through, and Jesus comes into the world. He comes through. Number four, Ruth's risk leads to a way forward for Naomi, and Jesus' risk leads a way forward for us. You see, Naomi is in a bind. She is stuck. She's in a hard place. But what we see in the story is that she's not hopeless She's not doomed because Ruth takes the risk both of going with her back to Bethlehem and also Ruth takes the risk of pursuing Boaz. She takes the risky path and therefore Naomi is not doomed. And the same thing is true for us. No matter what you're going through, no matter what bind you're in, no matter what hardship you're facing, you are not stuck. You are not stuck. You are not doomed because Jesus enters into your story because his risk leads a way forward for a different outcome for your life. That the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for you, it meets you where you are, but it doesn't leave you there. It moves you, it changes your life. It pulls you into the kingdom so that you can live with the joy and the hope and the freedom that only Christ can bring. Number five, Ruth embodies the covenant love of God to Naomi. And Jesus embodies the covenant love of God to the world. He embodies the covenant love. Now, there's a very important Hebrew word that's used, uh, and it's the word hased. And hased is often translated as kindness or loving kindness. Um, But it's a word that means covenant loyalty or loyal love or faithful, enduring love. It's a love that's about a commitment that goes beyond just the moment or a feeling. It's, It's a deep, important word. And what we see playing out in the story is that that Naomi has nothing to offer Ruth. In fact, she says as much. She says, I have nothing to offer you. And yet Ruth acts so selflessly in risks that Naomi cannot earn her loyalty. And yet she is faithful She is faithful and she follows and she loves and she risks. And you and I, we can do nothing to earn Jesus' loyalty. We can do nothing to earn his love. We can offer him nothing in return that he needs. And yet he risks and he sacrifices and he selflessly pursues us. The selflessness of Christ reveals God's love for you and for me, God's love for the whole world. Selflessness always requires risk. 
Selflessness requires letting go. It requires risking letting go of something. And so there are two kinds of people at least with us here. There are some of us who need to risk letting go of what we're holding on to so that we can receive God's love. And there are some of us who need to risk letting go of what we're holding on to so that we can show God's love. And so some of us are holding on to something so dearly, we're clinging so tight that we cannot receive God's love with open hands because we are holding on to something that we find more valuable. Whether it's something of our own doing or what others think of us, whether it's achievements or accolades or earnings, we're holding on to something. Or maybe it's some other promise of a good life that we're chasing that we just can't quite let go of. Or maybe it's even our own brokenness and our own failures and our own past and our own shame that we're holding on to so tightly that we can't quite let go of. We don't like it. We don't love it, but it defines us and we can't quite give it over. Some of us need to open-handedly receive God's love. Some of us are holding tightly to something that we need to let go so that we can show others God's love, that we are are acting in self-centered and selfish and self-focused ways that are not about risking letting go, but about holding on tightly in case things don't work out the way we planned. I know sometimes it's, you know, for me, I I, I think if I I take some time to bless someone else, who's gonna bless me? If I take time to look out for someone else, who's gonna look out for me? And it's easy to get in this habit of, of having a scarcity mindset where we don't realize that God has already done for us in Jesus everything we could possibly need. We are blessed beyond imagination, which allows us to let go and to receive God's love and to show God's love to others. What are you afraid to risk letting go of? Where is the love of Christ calling you to risk letting go so that you might receive or you might show God's love to someone? You know, the story of Ruth is an interesting one because the, the word God barely even shows up in the four chapters of Ruth. And so sometimes you have to wonder, wait, why is this story even in the Bible? It barely even talks about God. But the thing about Ruth that's so interesting is that Ruth is uh, parabolic. It's parabolic. It's, it's, it serves as a parable within the nation of Israel. And here's why. Uh, Okay, you get everyone's Christmas cards, and what's on the Christmas card is the best possible picture of somebody, right? It's, it's, like, it's like a family or a person at their best. It's how you want people to see you and remember you. You put that picture on the card. So the book of Ruth is a picture of God's people at their best, This is how we want God's people to be remembered. This is how you want others to see. This is how God's people are supposed to look. This is how they're supposed to act. That there's selfless love and risk that makes outsiders insiders, that helps insiders experience and show love to others. It's a story of risk and selflessness and covenant love and loyalty. And it happens through all the characters. Again, Boaz is a major player in this story. We're talking about Ruth today, but Boaz is a major player in the story. He shows the same things. Guys, this is true for God's people in the Old Testament. This is true for God's church today. 
It's true for God's people. It's true for Christ's Presbyterian church. We are called to live with such selflessness and risk that we can both receive and show God's love to insiders and to outsiders, that we are not holding on to things that stand in the way of our, our ability to experience or demonstrate his love, but we're trusting that what God has done for us in Christ is better than all. It's better than anything else that we could possibly do or earn or receive or achieve. God's selfless love came to earth for us to know it, and for us to show it to the world. Let's risk it all to be a part of that story. Amen. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up and to join us as we close together. But as they're coming, as they're getting ready, I just wanted to invite you to consider for a few minutes what is God calling you to risk letting go of so that you can experience or show his love this season?